Another Mysterious Murder Brought to Light from the New York Times, October 3, 1888 Recorded for LibriVox.org by Leanne Howlett London's Record of Crime Another Mysterious Murder Brought to Light from Our Own Correspondent London, October 2nd the carnival of blood continues is an extremely strange state of affairs altogether because before the whitechapel murders began several papers called attention to the fact that there had been more sanguinary crimes committed in london and its vicinity this summer than ever before known in this city in the same space of time the whitechapel assassin has now murdered six victims and crimes occur daily but pass unnoticed in view of the master murderer's work in the east end Last Friday, a man in Pimlico sharpened a knife in the presence of his wife, threatening her all the time, and then cut off her head with it. This rather dramatic crime passed off without particular notice, the papers giving it only a brief paragraph. This afternoon, however, a discovery was made which was even more horrible than any of the recent deeds. A few days ago, the right arm of a woman was found by some boys in the Thames near Waterloo Bridge. It belonged to a young woman, was plump, shapely, and graceful, and had been rudely hacked from the shoulder. It was believed at first to be evidence of another murder, but as no young woman had been murdered so far as known, the theory that it was a specimen from a dissecting room was generally adopted. The police took immediate possession of it, and refused absolutely either to give any information concerning its appearance or to say whether it pointed to a fresh crime. The boys who found it said it was a well-preserved human arm, but scarred and excoriated in many places, as if from the action of quick lime. The police refused to say yes or no to this, but hinted or said that it was all a mistake, and that the thing found was merely the old skeleton of an arm with no flesh on it. This afternoon, however, a discovery was made in Pimlico, a mile up the river from where the arm was found, which throws some light on the mystery. There are some old buildings on the embankment, close to the Parliament Houses, and almost in the shadow of Westminster Abbey, and workmen are engaged in tearing these down to prepare a site for the new police station. As they destroyed an old vault today, they came upon a shapeless mass, which upon closer inspection proved to be the trunk of the body of a young woman, perhaps thirty years old. The horribly mutilated head, arms, and legs have been cut off and carried away, only the trunk being left. The body was not ripped, however, as in the Whitechapel cases. It was very much decomposed, and in fact must have been there many weeks. The police removed it to a mortuary, and tomorrow morning the doctors will adjust the arms beside it to see if they fit. It is now admitted by the police that the second arm found matched the first one. Should the arms belong to the body, they may serve as a clue. They seem in a much better state of preservation than the body, however, and should they not fit, they will stand as evidence of a second horrible crime yet unrevealed. There is no clue to the identity of the murdered woman. In fact, so many people disappear daily in this great city that the record of disappearances will not be of much assistance. This crime, single or double as it may be, has no connection with the Whitechapel murders. Its method is different in every possible respect, and should it prove to be two murders instead of one, it will show an independent operation of the Whitechapel nature. Pimlico is two miles from Whitechapel. The master murderer of the latter district has done all his work in one small area, and there is no clue whatever to him. Tonight, a crazy man, with bloodstains on his coat, who was flourishing surgical knives and making a general spectacle of himself in Milk Street in the city, was arrested, but he proves to be innocent. Another suspect was arrested in Chingford, Ifling Forest today, but he easily proved an alibi. No one suspected is at present in custody, though all Scotland Yard is at work on the case. Also, Associated Press Dispatch, London, October 2nd. 
An inquest was held today on the body of the woman found murdered in a narrow court off Burner Street Sunday morning. A sister of the victim was called and deposed that she was awoke at 1.20 o'clock Sunday morning and heard a sound which she thought was made by a person falling to the ground. She was convinced that her sister was dead and after reading the accounts of the murder in the newspapers went to the morgue and recognized the body of the murdered woman as that of her sister. The house in which the witness resides is several miles from Burner Street. The murder is believed to have been committed at about 12.50 o'clock Sunday morning. End of article. This recording is in the public domain. The Whitechapel Murders from the New York Times, October 5, 1888. Recorded for LibriVox.org by Leanne Howlett. The Whitechapel Murders. London, October 4th. The British Medical Journal, referring to the Whitechapel murders, says, The coroner's theory that the assassin's work was carried out under the impulse of a pseudo-scientific mania has been exploded by the first attempt at serious investigation. It is true that a foreign physician inquired a year ago as to the possibility of securing certain parts of the body for the purpose of scientific investigation, but no large sum was offered, and the physician in question is of the highest respectability and came exceedingly well accredited. End of article. This recording is in the public domain. The Murders in London from the New York Times, October 6, 1888. Recorded for LibriVox.org by Leanne Howlett. The Murders in London. London, October 5th. Sir Charles Warren, Chief of the Metropolitan Police Force, has decided to employ bloodhounds in his efforts to discover the perpetrator of the Whitechapel murders. The police place confidence in the story of George M. Dodge, a seaman who states that in August last he met a Malay cook named Alaska, with whom he had previously been acquainted on shipboard in a music hall in London, and that Alaska told him he had been robbed of all he had by a woman of the town, and threatened that unless he found the woman and recovered his property, he would kill and mutilate every Whitechapel woman he met. The police are searching everywhere for the Malay. Acting on information which has been furnished them, the police have seized and occupied several houses in that section. End of article. This recording is in the public domain. The Parnell Inquiry and Another Butchery From the New York Times, November 10, 1888 Recorded for LibriVox.org by Leanne Howlett Exciting London Events the Parnell Inquiry and Another Butchery, by commercial cable from our own correspondent. London, November 9th. From today's proceedings of the Parnell Commission, it seems likely that the inquiry hereafter will go on in a cloud of sparks knocked out by partisan conflict. The Irish members are deeply indignant at the persistent pro-Times rulings of Justice Hannon and only less vexed with their English lawyers who have so tamely accepted these rulings without protest. The mutterings against this supineness have finally grown so loud that Sir Charles Russell was today impelled to try a sharp fall with Justice Hannon. The incident was exciting at the time, but it is most interesting as presaging a partisan struggle from this out, with the great probability of somebody going to prison for contempt of court. The most eligible candidate for this distinction appears at present to be William O'Brien, who this week attacks the Commission in United Ireland as a one-sided fraud. The discovery today of the seventh Whitechapel murder, this time believed to have been committed in broad daylight and involving the most terrible wholesale mutilation it is possible to imagine, overshadows all other topics in the London mind tonight. 
Bloodhounds are out, but I am unable to learn at this hour that they have discovered anything. The conclusion is now universal that the assassin is a periodic lunatic who, unless detected at once, is likely to commit a fresh series of crimes within a few days before his frenzy passes away. Also, London, November 9th. At eleven o'clock this morning, the body of a woman cut into pieces was discovered in a house on Dorset Street, Spitalfields. The police are endeavoring to track the murderer with the aid of bloodhounds. The appearance of the body was frightful, and the mutilation was even greater than in the previous cases. The head had been severed and placed beneath one of the arms. The ears and nose had been cut off. The body had been disemboweled, and the flesh was torn from the thighs. Some of the organs were missing. The skin had been torn off the forehead and cheeks. One hand had been pushed into the stomach. The victim, like all the others, was disreputable. She was married, and her husband was a porter. They lived together at spasmodic intervals. Her name is believed to have been Lizzie Fisher, but to most of the habitués of the haunts she visited, she was known as Mary Jane. She had a room in the house where she was murdered. She carried a latch key, and no one knows at what hour she entered the house last night, and probably no one saw the man who accompanied her. Therefore, it is hardly likely that he will ever be identified. He might easily have left the house at any time between one and six o'clock this morning without attracting attention. The doctors who have examined the body refuse to make any statement until the inquest is held. Three bloodhounds belonging to private citizens were taken to the place and put on the scent of the murderer, but they were unable to keep it for any great distance, and all hope of running the assassin down with their assistance will have to be abandoned. The murdered woman told a companion last evening that she was without money and would commit suicide if she did not obtain a supply. It has been learned that a man, respectably dressed, accosted the victim and offered her money. They went to her lodgings on the second floor of the Dorset Street house. No noise was heard during the night, and nothing was known of the murder until the landlady went to the room early this morning to ask for her rent. The first thing she saw on entering the room were the woman's breasts and viscera lying on a table. Dorset Street is short and narrow, and is situated close to Mitre Square and Hanbury Street. In the House of Commons today, Mr. Conabare asked the question whether, if it was true that another woman had been murdered in London, General Warren, the chief of the Metropolitan Police, ought not to be superseded by an officer accustomed to investigate crime. The question was greeted by cries of, Oh, oh! The Speaker called, Order, order, and said that notice must be given of the question in the usual way. Mr. Conabare replied, I have given private notice. The Speaker, the notice must be made in writing. Mr. Cunningham Graham then asked whether General Warren had already resigned, to which Mr. Smith, the government leader, replied no. End of article. This recording is in the public domain. Sir Charles Warren resigns. From the New York Times, November 13, 1888. Recorded for LibriVox.org by Leanne Howlett. Sir Charles Warren resigns. London, November 12th. General Sir Charles Warren, Chief of the Metropolitan Police, has tendered his resignation. It is understood that this action is due to the severe criticisms that have been made upon his efficiency recently in connection with the Whitechapel murders. In the House of Commons this afternoon, Mr. Matthews, the Home Secretary, announced the resignation of General Warren as Chief of the Metropolitan Police. The announcement was greeted with cheers. Mr. W. H. Smith, the government leader, said that an extra estimate would be presented to meet the expenses of the Parnell Commission. He also said that application had been made to the Irish government for access to certain documents, and that leave to examine these documents would be granted to the Council of both the Times and the Parnellites under certain conditions. End of article. 
This recording is in the public domain. His Arrest in London, Not His First Experience From the New York Times, November 19, 1888 Recorded for LibriVox.org by Leanne Howlett The Same Tumblety His Arrest in London, Not His First Experience the Dr. Tumblety, who was arrested in London a few days ago on suspicion of complicity in the Whitechapel murders, and who, when proved innocent of that charge, was held for trial in the Central Criminal Court under the special law covering the offenses disclosed in the late modern Babylon scandal, will be remembered by any number of Brooklynites and New Yorkers as Dr. Blackburn, the Indian herb doctor. He is the fellow who, in 1861, burst upon the people of Brooklyn as a sort of modern Count of Monte Cristo. He was of striking personal appearance, being considerably over six feet in height, of graceful and powerful build, with strong, marked features, beautifully clear complexion, a sweeping mustache, and jet black hair. He went dashing about the streets, mounted on a handsome light chestnut horse, and dressed in the costliest and most elaborate riding costumes, and soon had a stream of customers at his office and laboratory on Fulton Street near the City Hall. In these rides he was invariably accompanied by a valet as handsomely apparelled in horses himself, and a brace of superb English greyhounds. He boarded with a Mrs. Foster at 95 Fulton Street, then a fashionable quarter of the city, and cut a wide swath in the affections of the feminine lodgers. After a few months he dropped out of sight as suddenly and as mysteriously as he had appeared, and was next heard of as being implicated in the famous yellow fever importation and black bag plots that the rebel sympathizers tried to develop in New York during the Civil War. It was at this time that his relation to the celebrated Blackburn family of Kentucky became known, and he thereafter went by his real name instead of his curious assumed name, Tumblety. His interest in the two previously mentioned plots was, luckily for him, so slight that he was allowed to go unpunished, while several of his associates did not get off so easily. For several years after this he kept pretty well out of the public gaze, and then suddenly took up his herb doctoring business with its attendant swagger again. He visited both this city and Brooklyn at about semi-yearly intervals and became a member of several questionable clubs. He dropped out of sight some ten years ago, and the first that has been heard of him since is the news of his arrest and imprisonment in London. End of article. This recording is in the public domain. Whitechapel again excited. From the New York Times, November 22, 1888. Recorded for LibriVox.org by Leanne Howlett. Whitechapel again excited. London, November 21st. Great excitement was occasioned this morning when it was reported that another woman had been murdered and mutilated in Whitechapel. The police immediately formed a cordon around the premises and an enormous crowd soon gathered. It was learned that another murder had been attempted upon a low woman by a man who had accompanied her to her lodging, but that in this instance his work had been frustrated. According to the woman's story, the man had seized her and struck her once in the throat with a knife. She had struggled desperately and had succeeded in freeing herself from the man's grasp and had screamed for help. Her cries had alarmed the man and he had fled without attempting any further violence. Some of the neighbors who had heard the woman's screams followed the murderer for about 300 yards when he disappeared from their sight. The woman says she is fully able to identify the man and gave a description of him to the police. The police are hopeful of soon capturing him and later. Investigations by the police showed that the Whitechapel woman who reported this morning that she had been attacked by a man who went to her lodgings with her is of the lowest order. She suffered only a slight abrasion of the skin on her throat and the police placed no credit in her story of an attack. 
they believe that she inflicted the injury herself while she was drunk. End of article. This recording is in the public domain. Something about Dr. Tumblety. From the New York Times, November 23, 1888. Recorded for LibriVox.org by Leanne Howlett. Something about Dr. Tumblety. San Francisco, November 22nd. Chief of Police Crowley has lately been in correspondence with officials of Scotland Yard, London, regarding Dr. Tumblety, who is at present under arrest on suspicion of being implicated in the Whitechapel murders. The chief, in pursuing his investigations, discovered that the doctor still had quite a balance in the Hibernia Bank, which he left there when he disappeared from this city and which has never been drawn upon. Mr. Smythe of that institution says that he first met the doctor in Toronto, where he was practicing medicine in July 1858. He next met him in this city at the Occidental Hotel in March or April, 1870. Tumblety rented an office at 20 Montgomery Street, where he remained until September 1870, and then disappeared as suddenly as he came. In 1871, the doctor turned up in New York. On October 29th, Chief Crowley sent a dispatch to the London detectives, informing them that he could furnish specimens of Tumblety's handwriting, and today he received an answer to send the papers at once. End of article. This recording is in the public domain. The New York Times, April 22, 1910. Front page. Mark Twain is dead at 74. Read for LibriVox.org by Esther. End comes peacefully at his New England home after a long illness. Conscious a little before. Carlyle's French Revolution lay beside him. Give me my glasses, his last words. Surviving child with him. Tragic death of his daughter, Jean, recently did much to hurry his end. Danbury, Connecticut, April 21. Samuel Longhorn Clemens. Mark Twain. Died 22 minutes after six tonight. Beside him on the bed lay a beloved book. It was Carlyle's French Revolution. And near the book his glasses, pushed away with a weary sigh a few hours before. Too weak to speak clearly, give me my glasses, he had written on a piece of paper. He had received them, put them down, and sunk into unconsciousness, from which he glided almost imperceptibly into death. He was in his seventy-fifth year. For some time his daughter Clara and her husband, Ossip Kaberlowitz, and the humorous biographer, Albert Bigelow Payne, had been by the bed waiting for the end, which Dr. Quintard and Halsey had seen to be a matter of minutes. The patient felt absolutely no pain at the end, and the moment of his death was scarcely noticeable. Death came, however, while his favorite niece, Mrs. E. E. Looms, and her husband, who is vice-president of the Delaware, Lackawanna and Amp, Western Railway, and a nephew, Jervis Langdon, were on the way to the railroad station. They had left the house much encouraged by the fact that the sick man had recognized them, and took a train for New York, ignorant of what happened later. Hopes aroused yesterday. Although the end had been foreseen by the doctors, and would not have been a shock at any time, the apparently strong rally of this morning had given basis for the hope that it would be postponed for several days. 
Mr. Clemens awoke at about four o'clock this morning, after a few hours of the first natural sleep he had had for several days, and the nurses could see, by the brightness of his eyes, that his vitality had been considerably restored. He was able to raise his arms above his head and clasp them behind his neck with the first evidence of physical comfort he had given for a long time. His strength seemed to increase, enough to allow him to enjoy the sunrise, the first signs of which he could see out of the windows in the three sides of the room where he lay. The increasing sunlight seemed to bring ease to him, and by the time the family was about he was strong enough to sit up in bed and overjoyed them by recognizing all of them and speaking a few words to each. This was the first time that his mental powers had been fully his for nearly two days, with the exception of a few minutes early last evening, when he addressed a few sentences to his daughter. Calls for his book. For two hours he lay in bed, enjoying the feeling of this return of strength. Then he made a movement, asked in a faint voice, for a copy of Carlyle's French Revolution, which he has always had near him for the last year, and which he has read and re-read and brooded over. The book was handed to him, and he lifted it up as if to read. Then a smile faintly illuminated his face when he realized that he was trying to read without his glasses. He tried to say, Give me my glasses, but his voice failed, and the nurses bending over him could not understand. He motioned for a sheet of paper and a pencil, and wrote what he could not say. With his glasses on he read a little, and then slowly put the book down with a sigh. Soon he appeared to become drowsy, and settled on his pillow. Gradually he sank and settled into lethargy. Dr. Halsey appreciated that he could have been roused, but considered it better for him to rest. At three o'clock he went into complete unconsciousness. Later, Dr. Quintard, who had arrived from New York, held a consultation with Dr. Halsey, and it was decided that death was near. The family was called and gathered about the bedside, watching in a silence which was long unbroken. It was the end, at twenty-two minutes past six, with the sunlight just turning red as it stole into the window, in perfect silence he breathed his last. Died of a Broken Heart The people of Reading, Bethel, and Danbury listened when they were told that the doctor said Mark Twain was dying of angina pectoris, but they say among themselves that he died of a broken heart, and this is a verdict not of popular sentiment alone. Albert Bigelow Payne, his biographer-to-be, and literary executor, who has been constantly with him, said that for the last year, at least, Mr. Clemens had been weary of life. When Richard Watson Gilder died, he said, How fortunate he is! No good fortune of that kind ever comes to me. The man who has stood to the public for the greatest humorist this country has produced has in private life suffered overwhelming sorrows. The loss of an only son in infancy, a daughter in her teens, and one in middle life, and finally of a wife who was a constant and sympathetic companion, has preyed upon his mind. The recent loss of his daughter Jean, who was closest to him in later years, when her sister was abroad studying, was the final blow. On the heels of this came the first symptoms of the disease which was surely to be fatal, and one of whose accompaniments is mental depression. Mr. Payne says that all heart went out of him, and his work when his daughter Jean died. 
He has practically written nothing since he summoned his energies to write a last chapter memorial of her for his autobiography. He told his biographer that the past winter in Bermuda was gay, but not happy. Bermuda is always gay in winter, and Mark Twain was a central figure in the gaiety. He was staying at the home of William H. Allen. Even in Bermuda, however, Mr. Clemens found himself unable to write, and finally relied on Mr. Allen's fifteen-year-old daughter Helen to write the few letters he cared to send. His health failed rapidly, and finally Mr. Allen wrote to Albert Bigelow Payne that his friend was in a most serious condition. Mr. Payne immediately cabled to Mrs. Brabelowitz, his surviving daughter, who was in Europe, and started himself on April 2nd for Bermuda, embarking with the humorist for the return to New York immediately after his arrival. On the trip over, Mark Twain became very much worse, and finally realized his condition. "'It's a losing game,' he said to his companion. "'I'll never get home alive.' Mr. Clemens did manage to summon his strength, however, and in spite of being so weak that he had to be carried down the gangplank, he survived the journey to his beautiful place at Reading. The first symptom of angina pectoris came last June, when he went to Baltimore to address a young ladies' school. In his room at the hotel he was suddenly taken with a terrible gripping at the heart. It soon passed away, however, and he was able to make an address with no inconvenience. The pains, however, soon returned with more frequency, and steadily grew worse until they became a constant torture. One of the last acts of Mark Twain was to write out a check for $6,000 for the library in which the literary coterie settled near Reading have been interested for a year, fairs, musicals, and sociables having been held in order to raise the necessary amount. The library is to be a memorial to Jean Clemens, and will be built on a site about half a mile from Stormfield at Crossroads. It is certain to be recalled that Mark Twain was for more than fifty years an inveterate smoker, and the first conjecture of the layman would be that he had weakened his heart by overindulgence in tobacco. Dr. Housley said to-night that he was unable to say that the angina pectoris from which Mark Twain died was in any way related to nicotine poisoning. Some constitutions, he said, seem immune from the effects of tobacco, and his was one of them. Yet it is true that since his illness began, the doctors had cut down Mark Twain's daily allowance of twenty cigars, and countless pipes, to four cigars a day. No deprivation was a greater sorrow to him. He tried to smoke on the steamer while returning from Bermuda, and only gave it up because he was too feeble to draw on his pipe. Even on his deathbed, when past the point of speech, and it was no longer certain that his ideas were held, he would make the motion of waving a cigar, and smiling, expel empty air from under the moustache still stained with smoke. Where Mark Twain chose to spend his declining years was the first outpost of Methodism in New England, and it was among the hills of Reading that General Israel Putnam, of revolutionary fame, mustered his sparse ranks. Putnam Park now encloses the memory of his camp. Mark Twain first heard of it at the dipper given him on his seventeenth birthday, when a fellow guest who lived there mentioned its beauties, and added that there was a vacant house adjoining his own. "'I think you may buy that old house for me,' said Mark Twain. 
Sherwood Place was the name of that old house, and where it stood Mark Twain reared the white walls of the Italian villa he first named Innocence at Home. But a first experience of what a New England winter storm can be in its whitest fury quickly caused him to christen it anew Stormfield. Where Mark Twain died. The house had been thus described by Albert Bigelow Payne, set on a fair hillside with such a green slope below, such a view outspread across the valley as made one catch his breath a little when he first turned to look at it. A trout stream flows through one of the meadows. There are apple trees and grey stone walls. The entrance to it is a winding lane. Through this lane the innocent at home loved to wander in his white flannels for homely gossip with the neighbours. They remember him best as one who above all things loved a good listening. For Mark Twain was a mighty talker, stored with fairy tales, for little maids he adored, and ruder speech for more masculine ears. It is a legend that he was vastly proud of his famous mop of white hair, and used to spend the pains of a court lady in getting it to just the proper stage of artistic disarray. The burial will be in the family plot at Elmira, New York, where lie already his wife, his two daughters, Susan and Jane, and his infant son, Langhorn. No date has yet been set, as the family is still undecided whether or not there should be a public funeral first in New York City. It is probable that Stormfield will be kept as a summer place by Mrs. Gabrielowitz, who is very fond both of the house and the country, although her husband's musical engagements make it necessary that she spend a part of each year abroad. Mr. Payne said to-night that Mark Twain had put his affairs in perfect order, and that he died well off, though by no means a rich man. He leaves a considerable number of manuscripts in all stages of incompleteness and of all characters, many of them begun years ago and put aside as unsatisfactory. Mrs. Gabrielowitz will aid Mr. Payne in the final decision as to what use shall be made of these. Mark Twain's Career Long Life, Struggles, and Achievements of Samuel Longhorn Clements Samuel Longhorn Clements was considered the best-known American man of letters. Often he was referred to as the Dean of American Literature. He was known far beyond the boundaries where English is spoken as the greatest humorist and satirist living. His famous telegram to a newspaper publishing a report of his death, when happily it was intrigue, has been quoted and requoted almost everywhere. The report of my death, he wired, is greatly exaggerated. The father of Mark Twain was John Marshall Clemens, who migrated from Virginia to Kentucky, and then on to Adair County, Tennessee, when a young man. There he married a young woman named Langhorn, who brought him family prestige and many broad acres. But with the prevalent spirit of unrest among pioneers, the couple crossed over into Missouri, settling at Florida, Monroe County, where their famous son was born. Mark Twain's life, however, really did not begin until years later, when the family moved to Hannibal, Marion County. Hannibal has been described many times as a typical river town of that day, a sleepy place filled with drawling, lazy, picturesque inhabitants, black and white. Young Clemens, so the record runs, went to school there, 
and so also the record runs studied just as little as he could if he studied at all he had been painted in that period of his career as an incorrigible truant roaming the river banks and bluffs watching the passing steamboats and listening keenly to the trials that went on in the shabby office where the justice of the peace his father settled the disputes and punished the misdemeanors of his neighbors in that period while the ambition to be a pilot on the great river burned in him was stored in his memory the material which in after years crystallized into tom sawyer huckleberry finn and puddin'head wilson mark twain's school days ended when he was twelve the father died leaving nothing behind save the reputation of being a good neighbor and an upright man and his children at once became breadwinners sam was apprenticed as a printer at fifty cents a week in the office of the hannibal weekly journal doing as he afterwards said a little of everything after three years with a capital of a few dollars in his pocket he became what was then a familiar sight a wanderer from one printing office to another about this period he paid his first visit to new york having been drawn here by stories of a great exposition then in progress he worked here for a while then moved on to philadelphia and later obeying always the wandering instinct which finally carried him around the world and into all hands to nearly all the larger cities of the south and west including new orleans the trip down the river awakened the old desire to be a pilot which had slumbered since the hannibal days and his career as a printer was ended he paid in cash and promised five thousand dollars to a mississippi pilot to take him on as an assistant and teach him the river he became a pilot and stuck to it until the outbreak of the civil war earning two hundred and fifty dollars a month but chief of all he got here his material for life on the mississippi his experience as a confederate soldier was brief and inglorious hardly had he enlisted before he was captured released on parole he broke the parole and returned to the ranks and soon was recaptured he was in imminent peril for recognition meant immediate and ignominious execution but he got away and determined never to take the risk again he stopped flight only on reaching nevada where several letters of his to the virginia city enterprise resulted in an offer from the editor of that paper of a place on the staff from that day forward clemens earned his living with his pen but with the exception of several excursions from nevada mark twain moved out to san francisco where after a brief service on the local staff of the call he was discharged as useless then he and bret hart were associated in the conduct of the californian but both soon deserted the paper to make their fortunes mining if they could neither did and mark twain was soon back in san francisco penniless and ill this was in blank the sacramento union sent him to sandwich islands to write a blank of letters on the sugar trade an arrangement which this time he filled to the editor's satisfaction and returned restored to health that winter however was one of roughing it for him he could get little to do as reporter or editor and finally took to lecturing in a small way he was a success from the start he spoke in many of the small towns of california and nevada earning more than a living and meantime writing sketches for eastern papers 
These attracted considerable notice, and in March of 1867 he issued his first book containing The Jumping Frog and other stories. Its reception was so cordial that Mark Twain decided to try his fortunes in the East. On reaching New York, he learned that a secret excursion was about to start for the Holy Land in the steamer Quaker City. He persuaded the Alta California, for which he had been writing, to advance him the price of the ticket for this trip, to be paid in letters at fifteen dollars each. He made his trip, which proved the beginning of his fortune for Innocence Abroad. His first famous book had taken shape in his mind before his return. To write the book, however, and to live at the same time was a problem. But Senator W. M. Stewart of Nevada, becoming interested in the project, obtained for him a six-dollar-a-day committee clerkship, while the work was farmed out to another man at a hundred dollars a month. Innocence Abroad, Instant Success The book was finished in August 1868, but a publisher was hard to find. At last, the American Publishing Company of Hartford agreed to issue it. Its success was instant and overwhelming. Edition after edition was sold in such rapid succession that the presses could not turn them out fast enough. Mark Twain had become a man of note overnight. Among Mark Twain's friends on the Holy Land trip had been Judge Jervis J. Langdon of Elmira, New York, and his two children, Dan of the Innocents, and Lizzie. Mark Twain fell in love with the latter, and it was said afterward that his desire to be near her led him to accept editorial connection in 1869 with the Buffalo Express. But Judge Langdon, who was rich, did not at first favor the union of his daughter and the nearly penniless journalist, and Miss Langdon twice rejected him. He sought a wife as he sought a publisher, and his third proposal was accepted. His father-in-law gave him a handsome home in Buffalo, but the young couple remained there but a year, going to Hartford, where they lived for many years, where Mark Twain did perhaps his most work. His fortune swept away. Two years later the firm failed, and Mark Twain's fortune was swept away. With courage as unbroken as when he could not get a job as a reporter in San Francisco, many years before, he again took to the lecture field to regain his fortunes. He received generous offers to go on tour, and everywhere was greeted by large and enthusiastic audiences. He made a new fortune, paid his debts, as Sir Walter Scott had done, and left the publishing business to others while he worked hard at his desk as ever. In 1896 appeared The Personal Recollections of Joan of Arc, More Tramps Abroad, and Following the Equator in 1897, and The Man Who Corrupted Hadleyburg, 1900. After an extended trip to Europe, he published in 1902 a double-barreled detective story, and in recent years, besides writing frequently for magazines, particularly the Harper publications, the Harper brothers having been his publishers for the last decade or more, he had been engaged with Albert Bigelow Payne, his literary assistant, in writing his autobiography. Much of it has already been published. It was estimated three years ago that he had written 250,000 words and was still turning out something like a thousand a day when he worked. Mark Twain had outlived most of his family. His wife died some years ago, and on the morning before Christmas last year his daughter, 
Miss Jean Clemens was drowned in a bathtub in their home at Reading, Connecticut. Broken himself, in health, and utterly crushed by this sudden affliction, he wrote on that day, She was all I had left, except Clara, who married Mr. Gabrilowitsch lately, and has just arrived in Europe. In 1905, Mark Twain celebrated his 70th birthday with a notable gathering of literary folk. Two years later he was honoured by Oxford University with a degree of Doctor of Laws, though in his younger days he was a great traveller, and was known personally to nearly all the crowned heads of Europe. Of late years he had confined his journeys chiefly to Bermuda, whither he was often accompanied by one of his best friends, the late H. H. Rogers, as long as he lived. In nearly all his public appearances in the last five years he had worn white flannel, and even had a dress-suit, claw-hammer and all, made of this soft white material, whose evident cleanliness appealed so strongly to him. Twain as Printer's Devil His own stories of his exploits in boyhood as acting editor one of the most interesting of all Mark Twain's books, or series of personal sketches related to the crucial but happy-go-lucky period of his life. At twelve he began his own account. He has told this characteristic story of his first literary venture, when the devil got the paper. I was a very smart child at the age of thirteen, an unusually smart child. I thought at the time it was then that I did my first newspaper scribbling, and most unexpectedly to me, it stirred up a fine sensation in the community. It did, indeed, and I was very proud of it, too. I was a devil in a printing office, and a progressive and aspiring one. My uncle had me on his paper, the weekly Hannibal Journal, two dollars a year in advance, five hundred subscribers, and they paid in cordwood, cabbages, and unmarketable turnips. An unlucky summer day, he left town to be gone a week, and asked me if I thought I could edit one issue of the paper judiciously. Ah! Didn't I want to try! Higgins was the editor on the rival paper. He had been jilted, and one night a friend found an open note on the poor fellow's bed, in which he stated that he could no longer endure life, and had drowned himself in Bear Creek. The friend ran down there, and found Higgins wading back to shore. He had concluded he wouldn't. The village was full of it for a few days, but Higgins did not suspect it. I thought this was a fine opportunity. I wrote an elaborately wretched account of the whole matter, and then illustrated it with villainous cuts engraved on the bottoms of wood-type with a jackknife, one of them a picture of Higgins wading out into the creek in his shirt, with a lantern sounding the depth of the water with a walking-stick. Next I gently touched up the newest stranger, the lion of the day, the gorgeous journeyman tailor from Quincy. He was a simpering coxcomb of the first water, and the loudest dressed man in the state. He was an inveterate woman-killer. Every week he wrote lushy poetry for the journal about his newest conquest. His rhymes for my week were headed, To Marry in H. One, meaning to marry in Hannibal, of course. But while setting up the piece, I was suddenly riven from head to heel with what I regarded as a perfect thunderbolt of humour, and I compressed it into a snappy footnote at the bottom thus. We will let this thing pass just this once, but we wish Mr. J. Gordon Runnels to understand distinctly that we have a character to sustain, and from this time forth 
when he wants to commune with his friends in H1, he must select some other medium than the columns of this journal. The paper came out, and I never knew any little thing to attract so much attention as those playful trifles of mine. For once the Hannibal Journal was in demand, a novelty it had not experienced before. The whole town was stirred. Hagen dropped in with a double-barreled shotgun early in the afternoon. When he found that it was an infant, as he called me, that had done him the damage, he simply pulled my ears and went away. But he threw up the situation that night and left town. Associate Editor of Morning Glory On the advice of a physician, Mark Twain said he went south shortly after his week as devil, an editor-in-chief in one, landing finally as associate editor on the Morning Glory in Johnson County, Tennessee. He gave this description of his chief. When I went on duty, I found the chief editor sitting tilted back in a three-legged chair with his feet on a pine table. There was another pine table in the room, and another afflicted chair, and both were half buried under newspapers and scraps and sheets of manuscript. There was a wooden box of sand, sprinkled with cigar stubs and old soldiers, and a stove with its door hanging by its upper hinge. The chief editor had a long black cloth frock coat on, and white linen pants. His boots were small and neatly blacked. He wore a ruffled shirt, a large seal ring, a standing collar of obsolete pattern, and checkered neck kerchief with ends hanging down. He told me to take the exchanges and skim through them and write up the script of the Tennessee Press. I wrote as follows. The editors of the semi-weekly earthquake evidently labor under a mistaking apprehension with regard to the Ballyhack Railroad. It is not the object of the company to leave Buzzardville off to one side. On the contrary, they consider it one of the most important points along the line, and consequently have no desire to slight it. The gentlemen of the earthquake will, of course, take pleasure in making the correction. I passed my manuscript over to the chief editor for acceptance, alteration, or destruction. "'Thunder and lightning!' he exclaimed. "'Do you suppose I'm going to speak of those cattle that way? "'Do you suppose my subscribers are going to stand such gruel as that? "'Give me the pen!' While he was in the midst of his work, somebody shot at him through the open window and marred the symmetry of my ear. "'Ah!' said he, that is that scoundrel Smith of the Moral Volcano. He was due yesterday, and he snatched a navy revolver from his belt and fired. Smith dropped, shot through the thigh. The shot spoiled Smith's aim, who was taking a second chance, and he crippled a stranger. It was me. Merely a finger was shot off. Now, here's the way this stuff ought to be written, said the chief editor. I took the manuscript, it was scarred with erasures and interlineations till its mother wouldn't have known it if it had had one. It now reads as follows. The inveterate liars of the semi-weekly earthquake are evidently endeavouring to palm off a noble and chivalrous people, another of their vile and brutal falsehoods, with regard to the most glorious conception of the nineteenth century, the Ballyhack Railroad. The idea that Buzzardville was to be left off at one side originated in their own fulsome brains, or rather, in the settlings which they regarded as brains. They had better swallow this lie if they want to save their abandoned reptile carcasses, the cow-hiding they so richly deserve. Mark Twain says he had written this way of the editor of an esteemed contemporary. 
John W. Blossom, Esquire, the able editor of the Higginsville Thunderbolt and Battle Cry of Freedom, arrived in the city yesterday. He is stopping at the Van Buren House. His chief editor changed it to read, That ass, Blossom, of Higginsville, Thunderbolt and Battle Cry of Freedom, is down here again, sponging at the Van Buren. Now, that is the way to write, he said. Peppery and to the point. Mush and milk journalism gives me the fantods. Blow to his friends here. New York editors and authors extol the man and the writer. The news of Samuel L. Clemens' death shocked all his friends and literary associates with its suddenness. Although it had been known that he was in a serious condition, no one seemed to expect that his illness would terminate fatally so soon. E. Hopkinson Smith, who has known Mr. Clemens for thirty years ever since, in fact the great humorist first came to the city and lectured at Cooper Union, was dining at the home of Mr. and Mrs. George Clark at 1027 Fifth Avenue when he first heard of Clemens' death. "'It does not seem possible that Sam is dead,' said Mr. Smith. "'We had been friends ever since he first came from San Francisco and gave his readings of The Jumping Frog on the lecture platform.' He had the kindest heart in the world. The reading public knew him more for his humor, but his friends knew him as a big-hearted human man. His attitude toward everyone was the kindest. In life and in art, it was always the human that appealed to him most. The humor of his books was the real, the genuine humor. Humor to be lasting must be clean. Clemens' humor was essentially clean. It will be lasting for that reason. It was the humor of human nature. There was never anywhere in it any double entendre. It was always kindly. It never ridiculed anyone. It never made fun of the littlest of men. Twain did not make fun of Tom Sawyer painting the backyard fence. He brought out the human note in the boy. And that's what makes us always remember that passage with joy and read it over and over. Colonel George M. Harvey of Harper and Amp Brothers who was Mr. Clemens' publisher, is abroad. But Henry M. Alden, editor of Harper's, at his home in Metuchen, New Jersey, last night spoke with emotion of the man who had been not only a contributor, but a friend. "'In Mr. Clemens' death I have lost a dear friend,' Mr. Alden said. "'I feel a deep sense of personal loss, and I can't express my sense of the loss to literature.' As for our personal relations, they are much more than those of editor and contributor. Nobody could tell anything about Mark Twain better than he could tell it himself, or, indeed, half so well. He has always been writing his autobiography. I have always believed that literature has lost much by not having had more of his imaginative creations on a higher plane. More works like Joan of Arc, for example— Mr. Alden has published his personal recollections of Mr. Clemens in the Book News Monthly for April. Mark Twain was, with one exception, the best-known American of his time, and without exception, outside of Poe and the New England School, he was our most distinguished writer, said Robert Underwood Johnson, of the century. He had the singular distinction of having, so to speak, naturalized American humor in many lands. This, it seems to me, was due to the fact that his humour was not greatly dependent on difficult dialects, but on large underlying ideas, and on a keen appreciation of human nature, and on a skilful use of the incongruous. 
in dramatic effect, in surprise, and in climax, he was unequalled and inexhaustible. I think that these things are likely to give more than usual permanency to his writings. We have outgrown many once popular humorists, but I can't conceive of a generation of readers to whom, on the whole, his work will not be of enjoyable interest, while literally he has added to the gaiety of nations and made us all his debtors. He has also, in his serious work, revealed an admirable and tender sympathy for children, and a chivalry towards the oppressed. So much has he become a part of our lives that it is difficult to think of a world without Mark Twain. His Countrymen's Tributes Express deep sense of what Mark Twain means to Americans. Mark Twain's death has meant to Americans everywhere, and in all walks of life, what the death of no other American could have meant. His personality and his humor have been an integral part of American life for so long that it has seemed almost impossible to realize an America without him. Something of this feeling is expressed in the tributes to his memory which, following hard upon his end, have come from all parts of the country. Some of these tributes are printed below. William Lyon Phelps, Professor of English Literature at Yale University The death of Mark Twain is a very great loss to American letters. I regarded him as our foremost representative in literature at the present day. Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn, his two masterpieces, will live for many years as illustrative of a certain phase of American life. Colonel Thomas Wentworth of Higginson in Boston. It is impossible to exaggerate the loss to the country. Mrs. Julia Ward Howe, now in her ninety-first year in Boston. The news of Mark Twain's death will be sad to many people. He was personally highly esteemed and much beloved, a man of letters with a very genuine gift of humor and of serious thought as well. Handon Garland, novelist in Chicago. Mark Twain's death marks the exit of a literary man who was as distinctly American as was Walt Whitman. The work of most writers could be produced in any country, but I think we, as well as everybody in foreign lands, will look upon Twain's work as being as closely related to this country as the Mississippi River itself. We, who knew him personally, hardly need to speak of him as a man, for all the world knew him. No one ever heard him speak without being inspired, and no one ever saw him without being proud of him. George Aid at Kentland, Indiana I read every line Twain wrote, for he was a kind of literary god to me. His influence has already worked itself into the literature of our day. We owe much of our cheerfulness, simplicity, and hope to him. Most of all, Twain grew old, beautifully, showing his simple, childlike faith for ultimate success throughout all his adversities. Booth Tarkington at Indianapolis he seemed to me the greatest prose writer we had, and beyond that a great man. His death is a national loss, but we have the consolation that he and his genius belonged to and were of us. Charles Major at Indianapolis He created a new school of humor, the purpose of which was not only to be funny, but to be true. He could write nothing that he did not at least feel to be true. All that he wrote was half fun and whole earnest. James Whitcomb Riley. The world has lost not only a genius, but a man of striking character, of influence, and of boundless resources. 
He knew the human heart, and he was sincere. He knew children, and this knowledge made him tender. End of article. This recording is in the public domain. Mark Twain from the New York Times, April twenty second, nineteen ten. Recorded for LibriVox.org by Linda Liu. That Samuel L. Clemens was the greatest American humorist of his age, nobody will deny. Posterity will be left to decide his relative position in letters among the humorists of English literature. It is certain that his contemporary fame abroad was equal to his fame at home. All Europe recognized his genius. The English people appreciated him at his own worth, and the University of Oxford honored him with a degree. His writings commanded a higher price in the market than those of any other contemporary whose career was solely devoted to literature. His public was of enormous extent, from the jumping frog to the diary of Adam. Everything that came from his pen was eagerly read and heartily enjoyed by multitudes. Much that he wrote has already been forgotten, inevitably, and in spite of definitive editions and the admirably practical management of his business in the later years of his career. But nearly all that Jonathan Swift, Fielding, Stern, and Smollett wrote has been forgotten, through their fame, resting on a few books, still lives. Artemis Ward, Mark Twain's greatest predecessor as a national jester, is now little more than a name. Nasby belonged exclusively to the Reconstruction period. For any American humorous writer it would be fit to compare with Mark Twain. We must go back to Washington Irving. But the author of Knickerbocker's ironical history and the Sleepy Hollow legend did not surpass in those denotements of the humorous genius, the author of The Adventures of a Cup Pilot on the Mississippi and Huckleberry Finn. Indeed, it is hard to say that Irving ever surpassed Clemens. Without belittling the first great American prose writer, we are compelled to doubt if posterity will name him in the same breath with a humorist who has just passed away. Innocence Abroad and A Tramp Abroad are likely to be remembered among the great travel books of all time. Full of the audacity, the wild exaggeration, and violent contrasts which distinguish the national humor, they are equally remarkable as a voracious record of fresh impressions on a fertile and responsive mind. Mr. Clemens's more serious works, such as The Prince and the Pauper, an incursion into the field of historical romance, A Yankee at the Court of King Arthur, and Joan of Arc, have been read by multitudes with great delight. He has been quoted in common conversation oftener, perhaps, than any of his fellow countrymen, including Benjamin Franklin and Lincoln. He has been honored by misquotations, too, and the humorous sayings of the ancients that have been attributed to him, though he never borrowed. His wit was his own, and so was his extravagance, and his powers of observation never failed him. We have called him the greatest American humorist. We may leave it an open question whether he was not also the greatest American writer of fiction, the creator of Mulberry Sellers and Puddinhead Wilson, the inventor of that southwestern feud in Huckleberry Finn, which, with all its wildly imaginative details, is still infused with rare pathos, has certainly an undying vitality. An emotional and quite unconventional sort of man, Clemens was, whose early life was a hard struggle for existence. He obtained his education where he could get it. Presumably his faults were as large as his merits. 
Intellectually, he was of Herculean proportions. His death will be mourned everywhere, and smiles will break through the tears as remembrance of the man's rich gift to his era comes to the mourners' minds. However his work may be judged by impartial and unprejudiced generations, his fame is imperishable. End of article. This recording is in the public domain. Austrian Emperor to Take Command at Vienna Headquarters From the New York Times, July 29, 1914 Read for LibriVox.org by James Smith Austrian Emperor to Take Command at Vienna Headquarters War Fever at Capital Crowds cheer outbreak of hostilities and demonstrate at friendly embassies Outbreak of food riots Prices soar as hostilities are declared and the government steps in to regulate them Manifesto from Emperor Forced to grasp the sword, he says, to defend the honor of his monarchy. France fears a great war. Army moves to the frontier. Belief in Paris that Russia will not desert Serbia. Special cable to the New York Times. Vienna, July 28th. Upon the issue of the formal declaration of war against Serbia today, Emperor Franz Josef gave orders for the removal of the summer court from Ischl to the capital. His entourage tried to persuade him that Vienna air would not suit him. But the aged emperor replied, I do not want the air of Vienna. I want the atmosphere of headquarters. The opening of the war has caused the imposition of all kinds of restrictions upon public business. All the railways, of course, are under military control, and the telegraphs are being reserved entirely for the service of the state. The hope is still entertained here that the war will be confined to Austria-Hungary and Serbia. The report that Russia and France have intervened in Vienna is incorrect. In official circles here, it is maintained that any action by those powers must be supported by the third party of the Triple Entente, namely Great Britain. It is known that Great Britain and France do not want a European war. Peace among the Great Powers, or war among the Great Powers, must depend on the action of St. Petersburg. At the Foreign Office here, it is freely stated that now that war has begun, Austria-Hungary will be bound to no more conditions such as she propounded prior to the outbreak of hostilities. Food prices up in Vienna. There was an abnormal rise in the price of provisions today, which caused great indignation on the part of the public, who flocked to the markets to lay in stores in anticipation of a possible scarcity. Vegetables in many cases trebled in price. Feeling ran so high that in many instances stall keepers in the marketplace were mobbed or assaulted, and the police had to be called out to restore order. The authorities declare that the sudden increase in the prices of provisions and vegetables is totally unwarranted. A permanent committee appointed to deal with the question of provisioning in the country sat today to discuss the regulation of prices in order to prevent the public being cheated. A similar meeting, with the same object, was also held in the Diet. It was officially asserted that there was no reason for apprehension with regard to the food supply, and that it was needless for citizens to start the accumulation of stores of provisions. The only effect of such procedure, it was added, would be to still further raise prices. Official arrangements have been made to take care of families of reservists called to the colors. In the event of a reservist being killed or reported missing, an allowance of about 25 cents per day for each adult and 12.5 cents a day for children will be continued for six months. End of article. This recording is in the public domain.